Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, I'm sure by now for most of us, this section of scripture is probably familiar to us. And we may assume that there's nothing here really for us to learn from it, because we've heard it every year at the Christmas time, and for years and years, if we've been walking with Christ, we've heard all the messages from Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. But let me just say to you, if we would just assume that there's nothing else here for us, we'd be wrong. Because you do know the Word is alive, it's living, it's active, and God continues to reveal things to us when He wants us to see things from His Word. And so I hope tonight you don't just tune out and go, oh, I know the Christmas story. No, there's a lot here. The first thing I want to point out is, look at how often in these few verses, Matthew goes into detail to clearly point out that Jesus' birth was of supernatural origin and not accomplished by human means. It's very clear. He keeps pointing that out over and over. Man didn't do this. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. It says, before they came together. You see it? That's before they had sex is what he's saying. And then also in that same verse, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. You go down to verse 20, you see the same thing again. It says in verse 20, Joseph's told, don't be afraid to take uh, uh, Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Go down to verse 25. And then it says, Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph obeys the angel, takes Mary as his wife, brings him into his house. They're married. They just never consummated the marriage sexually, which was the final part of the marriage ceremony. They were betrothed before where she lived with her folks and he lived with his folks. But after the angel said, take her home to be your wife, you can do that. He takes her home to be his wife, welcomes her into his house. They just don't have sex until after the baby's born. And the Bible, very clearly in these short passages, make clear, before they came together, this is of the Holy Spirit, this is of the Holy Spirit, and he didn't know her sexually until after the baby was born. Do you remember earlier in our study of the genealogies, we saw how the scripture clearly pointed out that Bathsheba had just finished her cycle, and this baby was David's, not, some, not somebody else's. The scripture is very clear here as well to help us understand that this is a supernatural miracle birth. There's no way that it was anybody but God who put this baby in Mary. That's going to be important for us later on in our study. You see, the supernatural birth had been prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 7. In this section of Matthew, Matthew actually quotes from this prophecy. And it says in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. All right, which means God with us. Go back to Isaiah chapter 7. And let's take a look at the, how this supernatural birth had been prophesied. And it's a familiar passage to many of us, but it's also, if you've ever studied it, one that's given a lot of people belly aches. But hopefully by the end of tonight, it'll be a lot more clear. And if that's going to happen, it's not because I open your eyes, but the Lord. Go to Isaiah chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 16. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not yet mount an attack against it. Now, before I go any further, we've got to make sure we're all on the same page here, because how the scripture words who's coming against who gets a little confusing. At this point, the nation of Israel has been divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is Israel, also called Ephraim. You'll excuse me, see that later on. And the southern kingdom is Judah. At this point, who is the king of Judah? Nope. That's why we're going to stop and clarify it. Ahaz. Look closely. In the days of Ahaz, 
Who was the son of Jotham? Who was the son of Uzziah? Ahaz is the king of Judah. It reads kind of tricky for us, but Ahaz is the king of Judah at that time. Rezin, the king of Syria, is coming against them. And Pekah, who was also the son of Remaliah, who was the king of Israel. Now, who's the king of Israel, Pekah or Remaliah? Pekah. If you got Pekah, you got it right. All right. So this is to make sure that we're all on the same page at this time now. We've got Ahaz is the king of Judah. Rezin is the king of Israel. Sorry, sorry, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah is the king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Pekah and Rezin both conspire together to attack the southern kingdom. Pretty sad, isn't it, that the nation of Israel is so fighting with themselves that the northern kingdom has conspired with the king of Syria to attack the southern kingdom. And as you're about to see, they've already got in mind who they're going to put in place as king and all that. So at this time, Syria and Israel are coming down to attack Judah, and Ahaz is afraid. All right. But they weren't able to attack it just yet. Look at verse two. When the house of David was told, that's Judah, remember, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, remember Ephraim is another word for Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the west washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah, and the son of Remaliah, which we know as Pekah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have devised, an evil, uh, devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you worry my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. All right. So here's the setting now for this famous prophecy that Matthew quotes from. And we're going to take some time to break it down because it's going to make the whole passage in Matthew come alive. All right. First off, Ahaz is the king of Judah. The king of Syria and the king of Israel have conspired to come against Judah and to attack it. And they've already got in mind who they're going to put up as king in, in Ahaz's place. Ahaz and the people of Judah are afraid. They're all panicking. No, no, we're gonna, we're, they're going to win and we're going to lose. And <clears throat> we're really scared. God sends Isaiah and he tells Isaiah to bring his boy with him. He says, I want you to go and I want you to make this prophecy and tell them. Don't be afraid of these two smoldering firebrands. In other words, have you ever noticed in a fire when something's smoldering, it's, it's about to die? They might have looked scary at one time, but they're actually fizzling out. Don't be afraid of these two guys. And thus says the Lord, their attack's not going to win. They're not going to stand. Now, if you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm at all. But just trust me, everything's going to be fine. And then God says, I'll tell you what, if you're still not sure that what I said is true, that I can, you can believe me, ask me of any kind of a sign. Ask me to give you some kind of sign that it's going to happen. And Ahaz, he looks spiritual. He looks humble, doesn't he? Oh, I don't want to put God to a test. But what was the reaction of God to Ahaz saying, I'm not going to ask for a sign? Was God happy or was God angry? He was angry. You know why? Because God knew Ahaz's heart. Here he is pretending to be humble and I don't want to put you to a test. But he doesn't trust God. God knows his heart. Because if he really trusted God, he wouldn't be panicking about these people. But he was. And God said, don't panic. But he still was. Oh, but I'm, I don't want to test you, God. And God says, I'll tell you what. You don't want to ask me for a sign? 
I'm going to give you a sign. Now that word you here in Isaiah 7.14 is plural. It's not just to Ahaz. This, this sign is for the people of Judah. All right, And that's very important for where we're going. He says, I'm going to give you, Judah, a sign. A virgin is going to conceive and give birth to a son, and you're going to name him Emmanuel, which we know from Matthew means what? God with us. All right. Now, he then says he's going to eat curds and honey when he's young, before he even knows to the right from the right from wrong. And before he even knows right from wrong, he gets to a certain age. The land in which these two kings that you're afraid of will be deserted. That's the sign from God. Now, did the sign happen right away? The sign didn't happen until hundreds of years later, did it? So this is my question for you tonight. How is that a sign for Judah? All right, I'm going to give you a sign. Oh, by the way, and the sign won't happen until hundreds of years from now. But here's your sign. A virgin is going to give birth to a son and going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Any idea how that's a sign? It's a promise. That's good. That's part of it. The best way I can explain it to you is to take you to Acts 27. Put a bookmark here in Isaiah 7 and go with me to Acts 27. <clears throat> Look at verses 13 through 26. Paul at this time is a prisoner being taken to Rome. He's appealed to Caesar and he wants to go appeal to Caesar, plead his case before Caesar. And since he's appealed to Caesar, he's now being taken as a prisoner in a ship of other prisoners uh, to Rome to go meet Caesar. And a storm comes up just prior to where we're going to start reading in verse, uh, seven, uh, verse 13. Uh, uh, Paul told him, don't sail. But the sailors like we know more than you. Shut up, prisoner. We're going to sail anyway. In verse 13, it says, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing they would run aground on, the, on Sirtis, they lowered the gear. And thus they were driven along. Since they, we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. <clears throat> and on the third day, they threw the ship's cargo, sorry, tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned." Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar." And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So Paul stands up and he says, you should have listened to me, first of all. By the way, I guess it's okay to say I told you so sometimes. <clears throat> and he says, you should have listened to me. But let me just give you a word. An angel of the God whom I serve just came and spoke to me and he gave me a promise he said, I'm going to stand before Caesar. And he's also said that everybody that's on this ship will be spared. We're going to have a shipwreck, but everybody that's on this ship will be spared. All right, you with me so far? Go to chapter 28. Look at verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> the, the, the verses I skipped over is the shipwreck. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. This is the island that they, he said we're going to run aground on. We learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and it was cold. Uh, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. It didn't just strike him. That thing bit and drained its venom. It fastened on his hand. And when the native people 
saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, just shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. How come Paul, it appears from the scriptures, doesn't freak out when he sees the snake bite him? And he's like, huh, that's interesting. Shakes it off. And he doesn't seem to be worried about it. He doesn't run and say, is anybody a doctor here? Can anybody suck the poison? He, he just shakes it off. How come Paul is not worried about the, the viper biting him? He's already been promised you're going to stand before Caesar. Therefore, even though this looks like I ain't going to see Caesar, God has said I'm going to see Caesar. Therefore, this must not be going to kill me. Folks, it's really important for us to understand this. Because a lot of times in our life, God has made us promises. But then things happen in our life where it doesn't look like the promise is going to be kept. Has it ever happened in your life or mine? But we have to hang on when Satan comes and says, ah, it looks like you're not going to make it, are you? And we need to shake the serpent into the fire. But here I want you to see it. Even though circumstances look like he wasn't going to go to Rome and wasn't going to make it to Caesar, God had made a promise. Therefore, no matter what happened between now and when that promise was fulfilled, he was going to make it to Rome. You with me? Go back with me to Isaiah chapter 7. What was Judah worried about? They were worried that they were no longer going to cease to be. They thought they were going to lose their nation, lose their, their people, because Syria and Ephraim are battling against them. God says, these two guys are not going to succeed. Actually, in 65 years, Israel isn't going to be, be around. They're going to be carried off. And you want a sign? I'm going to give you a sign. Judah... You are going to see a virgin, a girl has never slept with anybody. You're going to see a virgin give birth to a baby. That's pretty miraculous, don't you think? How is that the sign to Judah that what God said is going to be true? Here's how it's the sign. God has told Judah that they will see a virgin give birth to a baby. That means... Until the virgin gives birth to a baby, we're going to exist. Do you see it? Because God has said, you're going to see, Judah, a baby being born to a virgin. And so even though attacks would come, even though Nebuchadnezzar is going to come later on in many years and carry them off to Babylon, Judah will still exist as a people because God said... Judah, you're going to see a virgin give birth to a baby. And until that happens, Judah has to still exist. You with me? Oh, by the way, where did that virgin come from that gave birth to this miraculous baby? What tribe? From Judah. Just like her husband, Joseph. They came from Judah. We already just saw that in the lineage. They come from David. And so this prophecy is just simply this. The Lord's going to give you a sign. You, Judah, you keep watching for the day in which this virgin gives birth to a baby. And until that happens, you guys are going to continue to exist, even though there's going to be things that happen to make it look like you're not going to exist anymore, even though you're going to go into captivity, even though all these things are going to happen. Relax. God's promised you you're going to see this virgin give birth to a baby. And therefore, you hang on to that promise no matter what else happens between now and then. Okay? Now, some people, though, that's because, like I told you, this passage is really cool, but a lot of people, have, it's given them a bellyache. If you do a study of Isaiah 7, 14 and the prophecy there, there's a lot of Bible scholars, and I'm going to put it in quotes because they don't seem too smart in my eyes, who say, well, that word virgin in Isaiah 7, 14, it doesn't have to mean virgin. It could mean young maiden or a girl of marrying age. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to deal with that tonight from the scriptures, and I'm going to blow it up. And I hope you'll be able to blow it up by the end of our time. But I want you to see, they say this prophecy doesn't really say that a virgin will give birth. It just simply says that a young maiden is going to give birth. And that's why you've, if you've ever done any study, some will say, maybe this baby is being referred to is Isaiah's son. Or maybe it's so-and-so's son. 
You ever heard some of that? All right, well, let's take a look at what the Scripture says. The first off, let me just show you this. This word that's translated virgin here in the Hebrew in Isaiah 7.14 is used a lot in the Scripture in the Old Testament. And just about every time, it clearly means virgin. Go with me to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24, look at verses 42 through 44. We're in the story where uh, Abraham is sent uh, his servant to go find a bride for his son Isaac. And in Genesis 24, verses 42 through 44, it says, I came today to the spring and I said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of the water. Let the virgin, that's the same word, who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. So here we see in Genesis 24, 42 through 44, that word virgin, it's the same word that we saw in Isaiah 7, 14. Go to Proverbs chapter 30. Look at verses 18 and 19. In Proverbs 30, verses 18 and 19, it says this, Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. Again, same word. It's translated virgin. Go to Song of Solomon. You're in Proverbs. Go to Ecclesiastes and one more book, Song of Solomon. And look at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Your Bible has it translated virgin? Yours says maiden. Yep. Well, like I told you, stick with me. Stick with me. I'm going somewhere with this. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name, your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Same word, translated virgin. Does yours say virgin or maidens? All right, stick with me. Like I'm telling you, there's a reason why we're going this way. All right, go to Song of Solomon again, chapter 6, and look at verse 8. There are 60 queens, 80 concubines, and virgins without number. You say maidens again? Young women. What is now, you said virgins there. Isn't that interesting? It's the same word. But it's translated virgins or young maiden or young women. Like I told you, there are people that say Isaiah 7.14 isn't really talking about Jesus. It could just be talking about some girl giving birth. And maybe it was just referring to Isaiah's wife giving birth to a son and everything. But stick with me. First off, like I said, this word is translated most of the time virgin. Now, you say, Jim, that's not proof that it can be translated virgin in Isaiah 7:14, because you yourself use the words most of the time, and so sometimes it could be translated young maiden. Okay, I'll give you that, but stick with me. I'm still going to win. All right, go, go to the second thing I want you to see. In the Septuagint, by the way, if you don't know what the Septuagint is, it is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Back when the Bible was being translated from Hebrew into the Greek, Jewish scholars took the Hebrew and translated it into the Greek. The Jewish scholars of the Septuagint translated this word in Isaiah 7:14, the Hebrew word, translated it in the Greek in a word that is clearly means virgin. Okay? But you say, okay, that's not proof either. Just because some men chose the word virgin when they translated it to Greek doesn't prove it. Okay, stick with me. I understand you got some questions, but I'm still going to win. But also, look at, listen to this. A maiden or a young girl of marrying age giving birth to a boy wouldn't be any kind of a sign. Right? I mean, young maidens are giving birth all the time. Which maiden? You know, you ever had one of those health and wealth kind of preachers that get into healing and all this stuff, and they'll say, oh, I just got a word from the Lord. Someone in here has varicose veins. Well, I bet you there might be more than a couple. You know, it's, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, someone in here has gray hair. Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, some of us are going bald. What good would a sign would that be if God says a maiden's going to give birth to a son? So another evidence for the fact that it should be translated virgin 
One who's never been with a man is the fact that it'd be no sign if it was just a young woman. But that's not the one I've been waiting to show you. The real reason we know that Isaiah 7.14 says virgin is not because the word was used as virgin in those other places in the Old Testament. It's not because the Septuagint translators translated it virgin. It's not because that would be a better sign. You know what the real proof is? The only one I needed to show you? It's in Matthew chapter 1. Who inspired Matthew to write what Matthew wrote? God did. The scriptures are God-breathed. And God told Matthew to write, when he quoted Isaiah 7.14, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. And the Greek, the Greek language is so specific, there's no question as to whether or not the word meant virgin there. And guess what? If God told Matthew to quote from Isaiah 7.14, and he told Matthew to use the word virgin, guess what, guys? It's a virgin. That's like I sat in seminary and I listened to people argue about who wrote the first five books of the Bible. And, and we know that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, but some people say, well, uh, and maybe there had to be this other source and, and all this other kind of stuff. And, and Moses couldn't have written the first five books because he's writing about his own death at the end of Deuteronomy and all this stuff. But you know what clears it up for me? When Jesus on the earth walking said, have you not read Moses? And he quotes from the Old Testament, first five books of the Bible. If Jesus says Moses wrote it, good enough for me. I remember sitting there in class and going, guys, why are we arguing about all this foolishness? Jesus said Moses wrote it. Shouldn't that be enough? Can't we just go home? Class shouldn't even be continuing at this point. Of course, they didn't love it when I said, let's go home, because I was always wanting to go home. But um, Matthew was told by the Lord to say a virgin. Therefore, Isaiah 7, 14, God says, I'm going to give you a sign. Judah, you're going to see a virgin give birth to a son. And no matter what happens between now and when that happens... You have to still exist as a people, because I promised Judah would see a virgin give birth to a son. Oh, and if you go back and look at Isaiah 7, 14, the rest of those two verses make sense. They said, here's how he's going to be eating when he's young. Oh, and before he actually even gets to a certain age, the two nations that you're afraid of, they're going to be deserted. And did that happen before Jesus was born? So why are we sitting around trying to figure out what, who the baby is? When Matthew says, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. All right, now, Matthew also tells us that Joseph thought about breaking their engagement. Back to Matthew chapter 1, Luke doesn't really bring this out, but Matthew does. Joseph thought about breaking the engagement because he didn't believe Mary's story about the miraculous conception. We know that Mary had the angel come to her and say, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you and the child that's going to be in you is going to be from God. And she even says, how in the world? And God says, I'm going to do it. She's found to be pregnant. Joseph knows that he's not slept with her. And now he finds out that his engaged to be is pregnant. Now, keep in mind, back in this day, the betrothal was legally binding. It wasn't like, we'll break our engagement. If they broke an engagement, there had to be an actual legal divorce. He said, I don't believe you. Can you blame him? Can you blame him? No, you can't. But we see something in Matthew's account here that is really valuable for all of us. And I want to talk about something for a second. The Bible says that he had in mind to divorce her. But if you look at his reaction, even though he was planning to divorce her, his reaction was not in a fit of rage. He made no sudden and foolish decision. The Bible actually says he was considering these things. I want to talk to you a little bit tonight about the danger of flying off in a rage, being short-fused. I have been a pastor now for many, many years, been preaching for almost 40 years. And I have dealt with so many people in the church that say, oh, I just got, I got a short fuse. 
Well, I want to talk to you tonight about the fact that the Bible actually says that that's a bad, 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 bad thing, and I didn't say enough bads. By the way, if Joseph had a short fuse, do you know that legally he could have had Mary and the Messiah put to death that instant that he found out? Go to Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22. Look at verses 23 and 24. In Deuteronomy 22, verse 23, it says, If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city, and he lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she didn't cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now it goes on and says, if this happens to a virgin when she's in the open country and she, there's no one there to hear her scream, she's protected. The man will be put to death. But the scripture says very clearly that if there's a, a virgin who's betrothed, who a man sleeps with her, and she doesn't cry out for help, she and the man who did this should be stoned immediately. To be taken outside the city and stoned. Remember when they brought this woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus? And they said, the law says she should be stoned? This is where it's coming from. So Joseph now finds out Mary's pregnant. She never cried rape. She never cried out that someone attacked her. Her story is, um, I really didn't sleep with anybody. God did this. You can't blame Joseph for not believing but instead of being someone who flies off the handle, he loves her. And as much as he's grieved, as much as he wishes he could believe her, and he can't, he decides he's going to divorce her quietly and not put her to shame. But as he was considering these things, that's when God comes and speaks to Joseph. You know, the Bible actually says that when we fly off the handle, when we react quickly in rage, it hinders our ability to be used by God. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go into James chapter 1. James chapter 1, look at verses 19 through 26. James says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I'm going to keep reading in just a second here, but let me just tell you, I've got two girls that are of marrying age. And if they were having their way, they'd be married now. They're just ready, but they're waiting on God, God's man, and he hadn't showed up yet. But we've had lots of talks about what this man's supposed to be like. I've been dating my daughters since they were four or five years old, taking them out on dates, one-on-one -on -one with dad. And on those dates we've been doing since they were four or five, we spend that date talking about what a real biblical godly man is going to look like. And I'll show up at the door when they're four or five with roses, and I knock on the door and say, is Nicole here? Is AJ here? Or sorry, AJ, try again. Elise here. And uh, I will take them out to a restaurant, and we'll talk, and I'll hold their chair, and I'll hold the door for them, and I've been teaching my girls uh, what to look for in a godly man all through. But one of the things I've told them as they've gotten older is this. If you end up dating someone that has a temper, you need to break it with him immediately. I'd rather you never get married than be married to someone who has a temper. Oh, by the way, I know it sounds like I'm talking to the men. There are some ladies that have this problem as well. Let me just tell you, thank God Joseph wasn't one of those people because he could have easily flown off in a fit of rage, made a rash decision, had her dragged out to be put to death, and nobody would have blamed him. But he wasn't that kind of a guy. We need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce 
the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Not, oh, I know, I'm not supposed to be a short fuse. No, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the word of God, the law of liberty and perseveres or keeps doing it, being no hearer but who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and he doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. I think it's kind of clear, don't you? Well, just in case you weren't sure, go to chapter 3 and look at verses 7 through 18. It says, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Did you catch that? You can't sit here tonight and say, well, I'll do better. No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes around from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do you see it? Those of us who are really in Christ, who are actually allowing the Spirit of God to work through us and live through us, the evidence of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I just... Felt that as I was looking at this and God opened my eyes to something I had never seen before, that thank God Joseph didn't have a short fuse. Because if he did, he would have tried, and I'm going to say tried, because I think God's so sovereign, he would have protected Mary and baby Jesus. Because, you know, Herod's going to try in just the next chapter. Herod's going to try to kill him, and God's going to protect him. I believe God would have protected Mary and Jesus. But, oh, how much trouble would have been caused for Joseph if he had tried to put the Messiah to death because he had a short fuse. Folks, you got family members with a short fuse? Pray that God gets a hold of them, that the implanted word would actually take root. And if it's talking to you tonight, you might need to spend some time apologizing to some people, maybe even your spouse. But don't make any promises that you're going to change promise that you're going to seek God for him to make the change in you and pray for their patience and their mercy. But if you want this to change, the only one that's going to change it is God. And it's time we as Christians stop ignoring the things the Spirit of God's talking to us about. Well, that's just how I am. I got a short fuse. You know, I blow up, but then I cool off. The Bible says that's sin, and you don't act like it's no big deal. Now, as you're going to see later on in our study, Joseph because he listened to the word of God through the angels, becomes Jesus' protector. And you're going to see it's kind of cool. He goes from not believing to understanding. Why? Because he didn't fly off in a fit of rage. He considered these things, and he was open to reason, as we just read. And then, well, how did God get to Joseph? How did God get through to Joseph? Did Mary finally convince him? Did she cry enough tears that she'd say, please believe me, please believe me? And he says, okay, I'll believe you. How, how, does, he, how does he get there? God got him there by an angel coming and speaking to him. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 1. Look at verses 20 and 21 and verse 24. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people 
from their sins. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The angel not only says, here's the truth, Mary's telling you the truth, you get to name him. You, oh, but, but here's the name. By the way, this angel coming and speaking to Joseph was a common occurrence for Joseph in the coming days. You're about to see. It was a very common occurrence. I'm going to do into it in more detail when we get into chapter 2. But just look real quickly at chapter 2, verse 13. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Look at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Do you see it? God's doing this a lot all of a sudden now with Joseph. Do you all realize we have something even better? I mean, here's Joseph getting very clear instruction. Hey, Mary's telling you the truth, Joseph. By the way, it happened in a dream. It wasn't that he was just sitting there and all of a sudden an angel showed up and started talking to him. It happened while he was dreaming. But he knew that this wasn't just a pizza dream, but this was an actual vision of God. And then later on, he recognizes when the angel comes and tells him again, hey, Herod's going to try to kill him, take him to Egypt. Then the angel comes again and says, look, it's time to go back. It's okay. He was a little afraid. The angel says, it's okay. Go to Nazareth. He's being directed and guided very specifically in his life by an angel. I got to go here because the sad thing is, is we Christians have it even better than Joseph did. And you would all agree, God clearly directed Joseph. Go to Egypt. Now it's time to go back. You're a little afraid. That's okay. Go to Nazareth. And he clearly directed him in what to do and how to live and what decisions to make. And we as Christians now who have something better than this, because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, whom the Bible says is going to lead us, direct us, and guide us, and teach us, show us what is to come, all these promises of God. We Christians walk around going, I don't know what to do. How do you hear God? I never know how to make a decision. I hope I make a good one. Isn't that how we talk? Because we don't believe the promises of God ourselves. So I'm going to remind you of some. Go to John 14. Go to John chapter 14. Look at verses 16 through 20. Jesus says, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you another. That word another in the Greek means one just like me. Another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he's going to be in you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you and yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. And in that day, you'll know that I'm in my father and you're in me and I'm in you. Look at verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Go to chapter 16. Look at verses 12 and 13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Have you ever noticed that all through the Bible in the New Testament, New Testament believers knew what God was saying? As they prayed and sought the will of God, the will of God was made clear. Paul tries to go into Asia, but he knows the Spirit won't let him. He tries to go into Mysia, but he's recognized the Spirit saying no. We see also that uh, all through the Scriptures, whenever someone's seeking the will of God, God directs them and shows them. It's time we understand the promises of God. Let me, let me show you one other thing. Now, I'm actually hesitant to show you this because I'm afraid some of you will twist it. And I'm going to warn you, don't twist it. But there's a truth here you need to know. Go to Acts chapter 8, verses 26. 
Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through 29. Joseph had an angel speak to him. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, correct? I'm going to show you an example in the New Testament where a New Testament believer with the indwelling Holy Spirit had both. Acts chapter 8, verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord, sound familiar? Said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit, Holy Spirit, said to Philip, go over to this chariot. And then we know the rest of the story. He leads him to faith in Christ. The guy says, here's water. It keeps me from being baptized. And then Jesus transports him to Azotus. Do you see it? He actually had an angel tell him to go to Gaza, toward Gaza anyway. And the Holy Spirit then told him to go over to the chariot. I'm cautious about telling you this because the Bible is very clear that we're not to worship angels. The Bible is very clear we're not to pray to angels. The Bible is very clear that there are going to be false teachers that are going to come and talk to you about the angels and what the angels can do in your life. The Bible is very, very clear to watch out for those kind of people. But at the same time, I don't want you to also miss that the Bible says that sometimes we're visited by angels unaware. The Bible says the angels are ministering servants sent to help those and serve those who will inherit salvation. We actually aren't walking through this life clueless. Well, if you are, it's not because God isn't helping. Because you have never learned to believe his promises that he's not going to leave you as an orphan. He's going to lead you. He's going to guide you. Oh, has he promised that he'll lead you and guide you? Then what if you don't know? What are you to do? Wait, because he's made a promise that he's going to lead you and guide you. And if he hasn't said anything today, it ain't to be found out today. But he said he will guide me. What we do is in those times when the snake bites and we start to wonder, maybe the promise isn't going to be fulfilled, we come up with all these other reasons and antidotes. Instead of just saying, God said he'd show me. I don't have to worry if I don't know right now because God's already said he's going to show me. And we shake the snake off into the fire and we wait because he's made a promise. He will lead you. He will guide you. He will show you what is to come. And he doesn't always tell you every single day, turn right, turn left. Because sometimes he wants you to walk by faith in what he said. We read in that passage where in Acts 16, Paul tries to go into Asia, but the Spirit won't let him. He tries to go into Mysia, but the Spirit won't let him. Does anybody know that actually that was 400 miles from the beginning of that passage that I just quoted to you until he has the dream of the man of Macedonia. We read it as just a few verses. It reads so quick. Oh, God said no. Oh, God said no. It was a journey that he went through. and He didn't have a whole lot of understanding except spirit saying no. Why? Can't tell you why. But I don't think God's wanting me to do it. And he continues walking with God. Tries to go somewhere else. Spirit said no. Doesn't know why. But he walks by faith. And I want you to understand that God sometimes will use even angels to direct us. I'm sure we could all tell stories for the rest of the night about times that God has probably used angels in our lives because it's real. But I'm going to share one with you. Years ago when I was pastor in Chicago, uh, a group of us wanted to go to Washington, D.C. for the march on the Washington by Promise Keepers. I don't know if you remember that. When the Promise Keepers men's group there decided they're going to get a million men from all over the country to go to D.C. And we were a small little church and we, were, we just really felt like God wanted a group of our men to go. And we filled a 15-passenger van with guys and we drove from Chicago all the way to Washington, D.C. And by the way, it was me and the worship pastor and a group of guys from the church. But me and the worship pastor were the leaders of this group. And neither one of us had ever been to D.C. And we... Led these guys, but when we got to D.C., our fear started to come up because we stayed in a hotel outside of D.C., and the next day we were to take everybody into D.C., and there were so many people coming from everywhere, we didn't know where we were going to park. We didn't even know where to go, and guys, this is before MapQuest and before GPS. All right, this is back when you had to read a map and try to figure it out. 
So we get everybody to the hotel, and we get the guys checking into the hotel. I said to the worship pastor, Mitch, I said, we need to go get some gas for the van so that tomorrow morning we'll have a full tank of gas because we don't know what we're going to be dealing with. Oh, and by the way, Mitch, um, when we get to the go get gas, we need to pray because I don't know where to go. Do you? Mitch goes, no, I was kind of thinking you knew where you were going. I'm like, I don't know where I'm going. So we sat in the gas station and we prayed, God, help us. We got a group of guys here ready to go to D.C. And you've led us this far, but we don't know where we're going. We don't even know how to get there. We don't even know what, what to do. There's a knock on the window while we're praying. It's a lady next to us in the gas station. She says, are you guys with those promise keepers? And we said, yes, ma'am, we are. She said, can my husband go with you tomorrow? He wants to go, but he's got no one to go with and no way to get there. And we're like, sure, there's room in the van for him to go with us. I, I, go, I go, we're staying at that hotel right over there. She goes, that's the hotel we're staying at. I said, could you have him meet us at 6 o'clock in the morning in the lobby? And, and by the way, ma'am, what's your husband's name so we can meet him when he shows up? We'll know it's him. She said his name, and I'm not kidding you, it was a name like John Brown. It was the most basic name, kind of like Jim Johnson, meant nothing, you know? It was just like, bah. So we gas up the van, we drive back to the hotel, we go to sleep. We get up in the morning, and there's this man in the lobby waiting for us at 6 in the morning. Are you John Brown? Yeah, I'm John Brown. Hey, John, this is Mitch, and this is Jim, and so-and-so. And we introduce everybody. We get in the van. He sits up in the front, uh, right behind the driver. And I said, oh, by the way, John, have you ever been to D.C.? He said, oh, all the time. He goes, I got best friends. I actually know some people that live right off the mall. John, that'd be awesome. Could you show us how to go? We don't know where we're going. He goes, no problem. And he leads us to this subway station at the end of the line where we could park for free. And we get on the subway to head into D.C. and we're the first ones on the train because it's the first stop. Well, there are so many people trying to get into the mall in Washington that day because of Promise Keepers. Every stop from there on, nobody could get on because the train was full. I mean, we're talking like jammed up. It was cool because we're all singing praises to the Lord, but it was kind of funny. But every time it would stop, everybody on the train, the, 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 the whatever your platforms outside would go, well, just go because there's no one getting on that train. We get to the central station, whatever it's called there. I don't know. I was lost. And I said, John, where do we go from here? He said, no problem. Follow me. And he leads us up this escalator. We get to the top of the escalator. We're now in downtown D.C. And I said, where do we go? He said, go, go straight down this road, just three blocks, and you'll end up at the mall. Just go right there, and you'll be there at the mall. And uh, so the guys all start heading in that direction. There's a throng of people heading there. And I turned to John and I said, look, why don't you just come hang out with us? And he said, no, my job is done. So I'm afraid of losing my group. So I turned back to go head up with everybody else. Totally convicted instantly. I've got to invite John. I turned back around. It hadn't even been a second. And he's gone. He's gone. Folks, we have a God who will lead us and guide us and direct us. He's promised us. So if you're in the middle of something and you don't know, he hasn't spoken. Just wait and trust him. And when Satan comes and says, hey, it looks like you're not going to make it. Looks like it's not going to happen. Shake him off into the fire. I love you. We'll see you next week.